Hey everyone, on today's episode of Noon, it is my pleasure to introduce you to my esteemed friend, Keegan. He is both a dedicated nurse and an experienced paramedic, bringing a wealth of knowledge to the table and eager to share his captivating story with us. During our conversation, we will delve into the consequences that can arise from pranks taken too far. Keegan will also regale us with tales of his proudest moments on the job, shed light on how he has navigated the difficult terrain of patient loss, and explore a range of other intriguing topics. Join us for an engaging and illuminating discussion as Keegan unfolds his journey, recounts moments of immense pride, and provides insight into the emotional landscape of healthcare. Let's get started. All right, Keegan, thank you so much for joining us on the 911 Nonsense podcast today. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Awesome. I'm great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Can I get a, an introduction of yourself? Sure. Uh, so my name is Keegan Godby. I have been working in EMS since 2007. I got my paramedic in 2009. I've been using paramedic since then. I've worked pre-hospital and hospital, uh, both small and large ERs. And I've spent the last six and a half years working a, a really cool and unique job, I feel, um, as a, as a paramedic for a government site that is dedicated to destroying chemical weapons. That's really cool. That is very unique. How did you get into a position like that? I feel like most things it's, it's all about who, you know, um, my old partner ended up getting a job up there and he got a job because his old partner <laughs> had a job up there. And I remember his last day at the hospital, he and I talked for a couple of hours in the parking lot. And I just asked him a bunch of questions and I went home and I was like, I don't know why I'm not doing something like this. And I kept an ear out and an eye out for uh, a job opening and one opened up and about four or five months later, I, I started. That's really cool. I started the day after Martin Luther King Day in 2017. Oh, that's neat. And yeah. how was the process in getting hired? Arduous. Arduous. <laughs> yeah. Because they have to do uh, a lot of background screens on you, right? Yes. So uh, before you ever even go out there, they do a pretty thorough background screen and then I had to fill out, and every uh, veteran that's listening to this will understand, but I had to fill out something called an SF-86, which is basically a prostate exam on paper. Uh, <laughs> I had to answer any questions at all regarding my uh, my personal history. Um, I had to list people I had lived with for 10 years, uh, jobs, reasons for leaving jobs, any speeding tickets, any crosswords. I had to put ex-wives informations down, like <laughs> everything. That's nuts for like 10 years prior, all of it. Oh about. yeah. Like I, I had to answer like, have I ever been in the vicinity of marijuana? Have I ever seen it? <laughs> really? And that's oh, so yeah. crazy. All, all kinds of stuff. Oh, they're going to have to get away from that because of the legalization of marijuana and not just in the medical sense, but now it being everywhere. Like I can't walk into my apartment without going through at least three puffs of different crowds smoking weed on the sure. street. So the problem with, or the issue with that is um, even though it's legal here in Colorado um, and now in New Mexico, it's still federally illegal. So we have to abide by federal guidelines. Yeah. I got, uh, I got into it with a nurse not too long ago because we were transporting a psych patient and he had marijuana on his person and he may have had a card. I'm not sure, but I told her we can't take that. And she was like, but it's legal now. Why? And I said, because 
we're putting him in an airplane and we are still regulated federally like that's transporting drugs if we do that that's super illegal and we can get closed down like i had to have this whole conversation with her and she was so offended about it personal feelings aside i uh this job is good enough that it's just worth it to not not tangle with it there will be a day it's fine so have you gotten randomed uh, a few times a few times yeah i'd never been randomed until i started this job and i'm like not even shitting you i got random like four times in a year we've had guys that uh that have been randomed like six months out of the year and they come in and they're like i don't understand what's going on like this doesn't feel random i'm like i get that i don't make the list man so i just need you to pee in this cup all right yeah <laughs> You're like, keep pissing me off, bro. Yeah. Like, we'll, I'll see we'll you. It... I'll see you in a month. That's right. I'll make it not rain. <laughs> so what um, what function do you perform in that in that position? So our job is primarily occupational medicine. Ninety five percent of it is scheduled physical appointments and heat stress monitoring. The guys that go in, they have to be monitored. Um, because it's a very physically stressful environment so they wear the little uh the little gym chest bands and they have mm -hmm. the watches with their heart rates and we have to to monitor them and and screen them for for heat stress and make sure they're good to go in every once in a while there's an ambulance response we have two ambulances um on site that are we're fully als capable mm -hmm. and uh our clinic functions to the level of i'd say like a small rural ER and then we're trained in chemical response so we as paramedics have potential to suit up into what's called OSHA C level gear which is gas mask the hood the the apron the gloves and the boots mm -hmm. and we're actually trained on how to render care in that gear Oof. that sounds awful <laughs> So that's not a hazmat awareness certification, right? <laughs> no, what hazmat have, do you have to get? I have gone through training at the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Chemical Defense, uh, which is out near Baltimore. Wow. Gone through two specialized courses for, for that. That's really cool. Yeah. That's probably like one of my favorite parts of this job. And not my job specifically, but as a paramedic. You get to go to some of the best training. Yeah. Like some of the coolest training in in whatever job you kind of get into. I think we're really lucky. Our um, our former boss, who retired on the last couple of years, had been working in D-Mail for a long time. And he worked with a lot of paramedics from a lot of different places. And his educational philosophy was go somewhere else and learn what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So I have been sent for work to find conferences within the continental U.S. Once a year, I get to travel. That's really cool. So I've gone to a conference on the Oregon coast. I've been to refreshers at UCLA and George Washington University. Wow. That's um, neat. Later this year, I'm either going back to the Oregon coast or to Austin for a week for, for a conference. That's really cool. Yeah. So and for your, for your clinic, and I don't know if you can discuss this, but how many people, because you said that you function as kind of a small rural ER, like how many people do you have on site roughly? Um, we can have like a few hundred on site. A few hundred. And when you're yeah. working, are you working like in a controlled environment or are you guys outside because it's so physically demanding? We are 
it is a fully controlled site. Wow. Yeah. That's really, that's crazy. How cool. That's, and how often are you getting prepared, like, to dress up to go in? So we do drills and stuff. It's actually uh, an incredibly safe and, like, well-regulated uh, environment. You know, people bitch about government redundancy, and I, I get it. But it's also a thing that's kept us safe. Yeah. Um, the only time I've ever put my gear on is to train. That's good. Yeah. Which is good. I can't wear. It's it sucks. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, man. I can't imagine that's. I don't. I don't miss uh, a bunker gear in the summer, <laughs> you know. And I can't imagine wearing the hazmat suit. Those are terrible, terrible yeah. things. Of course, you know the some of the times they've trained us, they've been doing it at like 11 a.m. in June. It's like, come on, guys, can we do this in the winter or something where it's at least kind of reasonable to wear <laughs> shit like this no they have to prepare you in the worst time yeah but even in june up there like it's a huge difference from what it was down here in new mexico right like oh no we're hitting already hundreds hundreds and ten degree temperatures uh pueblo the, the city of pueblo is pretty warm is it yeah Ugh, gross <laughs> that sounds terrible Oh yeah, it's uh, it is you know, we're gonna have some swamp ass. Yeah, <laughs> Colorado swamp ass. Oh, oh gross. man, the worst. So you recently also graduated with your BSN, right? Yeah, summa cum laude, baby. Yeah, congratulations, man. That's exciting. Thank you. So you you get to see the the best of both worlds, right? Because you're hanging out and working as a paramedic full time, but then you're also kind of dabbling on the nursing side yeah i work i do work prn as a nurse um on an inpatient floor been a nurse for a couple of years now and i'll tell you as a paramedic i had a really skewed perspective of what floor nursing was and now that i'm in the thick of it i every, let me tell you every paramedic that's listening to this we don't know shit about it it's no <laughs> it's so hard it can be physically demanding be uh, like mentally demanding if you're trying to balance, you know, five or six different order sets for patients. Sure. Of course, you know, no one has meds at the same time. So every hour on the hour, you're checking your little paper brain and uh, seeing what I got next and, and performing wound care and cath care and, and uh, central line care. And it's just, you're never caught up. You're just, you, there's just spaces to take a breath. You're just trying to get through the day. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I will be the first to admit that while I think I'm a pretty good paramedic, I am not a very strong nurse yet. No? So, uh, I mean, it's just, it's a new skill set and it's a new thing. So, and I'm, I'll be honest, you know, it's a, it's a different, it's a different type of thing. Yeah. You have to change your thinking a little bit. Yeah. Especially on the floor, like I feel if I was working in the emergency room, uh, enough skill sets overlap there that I uh, shift in pretty seamlessly. But on the floor, dealing with the same patients every day, you get really spoiled when, uh, you know, you have an asshole and you're like, well, in 15 minutes, I'll turn you over to the hospital. Yeah. Whereas like, I'm going to leave this room and in 10 minutes, you're going to push your call and I have to come back in here and be like, what can I do for you? <laughs> yeah, that's got to be pretty hard. Yeah. Um, good on you, man, because I couldn't do it. I, there's been a, a huge push 
for paramedics to get into the nursing field, you know, and it's it's kind of a no brainer because it, it is a huge pay difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how are you getting paid PRN versus your full time medic job? Like, is it fairly comparable? Yeah, um, my full time paramedic job is is unique in our pay. Being a federal contractor, I don't I don't necessarily want to talk numbers. No. Um, but I'm willing to bet that if you were to take every paramedic that's employed by a private agency or corporation in the U.S. and then list us all by by pay, I am willing to bet myself and my coworkers sit in the top one percent. Top one percent. Yeah. For paramedic pay. Yes. That's pretty good, dude. That's pretty yeah. good. And that's are you salary or hourly? Hourly. Oh, that's even better. So you get all of like the federal government benefits too, right? Like the holidays and the. No, because we we work, um, you know, we man the clinic twenty four seven. So like we get paid Mm -hmm. on the holidays, but we don't get them off. So do you get time and a half? Uh, no. No. Well, I mean, you make enough money that that's probably okay. Yeah, and we're because we're contractors, we don't get all of like the the federal benefits. Sure. So we, but we. We we get enough, and yeah. uh, it it's not a it's not a particularly challenging job. No, that's pretty good. It's a lot of it's a lot of learning to jump through hoops and to kind of temper government expectations. But ultimately, it's not nearly as challenging uh, physically as working on a rig is. Sure, and I, I think to, that's uh, kind of like the goal is to get into a federal position, right? Like. Yeah. Like a federal fire department, a lot of people want to get into that position because you're not working as hard as you would be in a city rig, you know? Yeah. I used to, I, the benefit of my schedule, we work 24 hour shifts and we work a rotating schedule. So uh, each shift works on average eight days a month. Wow. That is nice, dude. That's nice. Yeah. So there's a lot of time off and, um, you know, some of the guys I work with, they work their, their eight, and they pick up overtime here and there, and then they have other stuff going on. There's people like me that you would think, like, oh, five days off sounds great, and then day two, you're like, I'm going to start climbing the fucking walls if I don't get out of here. <laughs> That's so funny. So I uh, I started teaching for a little bit um, at a local community college, and uh, some of my students would ask me about calls and and uh, tell me about the, the thing they did on the rig, and I that's really cool, you guys. But I uh, said, like, my outdoor cat days are done. I'm an indoor cat now. Like, <laughs> you know, you can I'm sp- you can go out in the neighborhood, lights and and tom around all day. Like, I'm fucking fat and spoiled, and like, <laughs> I got dinner time, and then I got nap time. Like, dude, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a young man's fantastic. game. Fantastic. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So, what are you teaching? I don't teach anymore uh, with the nursing thing, and then this full-time job i just don't have the time to do it but i was sure. just helping out with labs and stuff oh okay um just proctoring like for emts like basics paramedics that kind of stuff yeah no that's cool i just started teaching i got my um my aha my instructor cards for aha and then i have my instructor cards for phtls and amls so i started nice. teaching just recently and that's it has been a very eye-opening experience Teaching some of the people that come through <laughs> the classes oh, yeah. has been quite quite interesting. I really miss teaching. Um, you know, one of the things I've been able to do working on the floor 
is, and having gone through nursing school, I know the gaps that exist in a lot of nurses' knowledge because nursing school doesn't teach you how to be a nurse. It teaches you, or it teaches you how to be like a generalized nurse, but they expect you to then get your certifications and stuff in whatever floor you go to. So it's a lot of like getting you to a base level and then you get stuff like your CEN, for example, or your CMSRN, like the those types of certifications or that you specialize. But those certifications aren't necessarily easy to get. And some of the nurses I work with have had questions about like how to read an EKG. And I've been able to like really break it down and I kind of shift back into that teaching mode. They're like, wow, you're really good at teaching this. I'm like, well, I've, I should be. I know. You've been doing it for long enough, right? Yeah. So how long how long did you work on an ambulance for? Oh man. Well, I've worked for two different services, um, nine ish years, give or take. Nine ish years, and we're both of them. Like I know one of them because I I knew that I knew you when we were working together. It was yeah. a fairly strenuous nine one one system. But how about the other one? Um. So well, you know, we we spent our time at an ambulance service i'll let you initialize there yeah <laughs> uh the other one uh, the other service is no longer with us unfortunately um mm. down south okay <laughs> that's funny because i was just talking about it yesterday it's, it's uh ironic considering the name and i think from there right if you know you know you can piece it together yeah um but that's where i cut my teeth and uh i you know, I got my EMT license. Uh, I took my test at the end of 2006, and I had to wait four months to turn 21 before anywhere would hire me. And uh, that first service hired me, and like right away, they're like, "You got a pulse and a license? Awesome, let's go." <laughs> Your paper's still wet. It's good. You're good. <laughs> That's right. That that means you're ready to learn. Yep. <laughs> How long were you there for? I'm surprised. Like, did we cross paths there? No. Because when I moved up here. Let's see. In 2009, that's where I started. So I, I was there uh, in April 2007, and in December of 2007, I took a job as an ER tech because I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> it's, it was rough, right? Like, I was there for probably, yeah, a little less than a year. And, it, like, the experience that I got down there was oh yeah, insane. It was such good experience as an EMT intermediate. I was running my own truck. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, the last few months I was doing the same thing. Yeah. Running codes and stuff as an EMT intermediate mm -hmm. because the supervisor felt comfortable with my medical decisions. But like, if you asked for protocols, they'd be like, hmm? <laughs> what, what's a protocol? Protocols? I know. Wait, do we have a book for that? <laughs> oh, it's on the state website. You could just find it there. It's fine. Exactly. <laughs> it was great learning experience though down there. It's, it's some intense insane calls down there so i worked down there as an et and then i got when i got my paramedic um i was still working in the er but i wanted to start getting actual paramedic experience and i didn't necessarily want to go to work for an ambulance service um because i was trying to get into the fire department and so i worked down there as well and i in the roughly year i spent down there as a medic i i earned some stripes i'll tell you that <laughs> yeah I believe it. Do you remember any of your calls down there? Some, uh, some were were fun, and some were uh, humbling, and and some were, you know, on the on that other side of not so fun and not so enjoyable. Um, I remember 
in particular. So I got my paramedic and there was no like orientation period to being a paramedic. They're no. like, you're a paramedic. There's your rig. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> have fun. And here are your narcs. <laughs> yeah. And so it's was, it was very like, yeah, all right, well, let's figure this out. And I like every brand new paramedic I had that, that unearned swagger of like, yeah, like I am hot shit in a champagne glass. Yeah. And uh, I remember once we got this call to uh, a local big box mart and we had been out there before in the, the prior couple of weeks and responding to like people that were sick and didn't want to be at work and, and blah, blah, blah. And so we get this call for chest pain and uh, I go out and respond to it and I'm like walking in and I got this like, oh, this is not the bullshit call. <laughs> and the manager is like waving us in. They're like, you got to come in. She's over here. And so we walk in with our gurney and I got the monitor and I'm like, yeah, where's this patient at? And he points me and I see this lady sitting on a bench and I can see from a hundred feet away the sheen of reflective yeah, sweat. The diaphoresis. And like, <laughs> she's all powerless and gray. And I was like, oh no, like what have I wished for? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I, so we're walking in, of course the fire department uh, down there, it's mostly volunteers, but this is one of the few paid services. And they're like, you need us? You seem like you got this. I'm like, no, 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 no. I need one of you guys in the back. <laughs> you got to come with and, me. <laughs> uh, yeah, like this is, this is not going to end. So we get her loaded up and I start running down the, the ACS algorithm. And I'm like, shit, what do I do? Aspen, okay, nitro, blah, 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 blah. And of course, you know, in paramedics, will you do these these statics and you're able to rattle it all off. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything when you're no. like, shit, what do I actually do? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, aspirin, nitro, oxygen, morphine, ah. <laughs> and we, we go to the the level one trauma center and um this particular ambulance service didn't have a reputation for the most scrupulous and or competent medics so they heard come on you know yeah, this uh, is a true story <laughs> and uh we rolled in and they're like oh from this service okay like what's going on and luckily one of my paramedic school classmates was in there and she was like oh no he's good like this patient's <laughs> probably really sick he's not lying i can vouch for him <laughs> And uh, we, she had a, she had a hundred percent LED occlusion. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And like, whew, man, just thinking about that call. I'm like, uh, I remember how panicked I was, but after like writing the chart and stuff um, and having some time to self-reflect, I was like, why did I walk into this call thinking like it was a bunch of nonsense? Yeah. And kind of having that, that moment of clarity of like, why did I think I've earned the right to like, oh, you know, this is probably going to be probably going to be bs yeah and like i got this i don't got this yeah <laughs> and like i need to start it was it was very much a shifting point in my career because at that point i stopped trying to approach calls as like this is bs and started approaching it with a more open mind this could be a serious thing and like this call is for is for this like what are the things that could possibly be and i you know even with a lot of experience like i we would get dispatched to certain calls and I would start reading my protocols like on the way over just to be sure. like, all right, like, do I know my dosages? Do I know what I need to do? I think that's kind of a good, like, realizing somebody who cares and wants to do the job versus somebody, again, like you were saying, who's just like, well, oh, this is another, this is just another bullshit call. I think when you start carrying that protocol pocketbook with you and you're like, okay, now I kind of need to be able to recognize what to do and what treatments I need to make. 
even if you're rolling up to something that you thought you were rolling up to and it's not, you know, I think that really shows that it really does show that you did self-reflect and you were able to turn that around and make you a better provider, you know? And like, I'm not going to lie and say that I didn't get salty. Like everyone gets salty. Everybody does. Everybody does. And, uh, you know, after you're like fifth or sixth, 23 Bravo in a day, you're like, all right, this, this is bullshit. Yeah. The t- yeah. And the tw- 23 Bravos are the ETOH patients that we have here. So yeah, when you're running five or six ETOHers and you're in that downtown loop, you're just getting stuck in the downtown loop because you just keep, yeah. you clear the hospital and then you have to go five blocks away and you pick up another drunk and then you clear the hospital and you have to go another five blocks away and you're picking up another drunk. That can be hard. Right. And you keep relieving the crews that are like, you can go ahead and cancel. There's a closer unit. And you hear it on the radio, and you're like, "Oh, yeah, no, I want to eat my sandwich." Please, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's so hard. It's I the regulations that don't allow for lunch breaks on twelve hour services. I think people don't realize how hard that is. I think you know it's having having listened to. Uh, to all of your other episodes, you know, long time listener, first time <laughs> caller. Uh, <laughs> one thing I think that I really that I'm starting to see change is this mindset around EMS that we, um, we don't, you know, we need to take care of ourselves and we need to advocate for ourselves. And I'm really curious how EMS will change in the coming years um, as we, as paramedics and EMT, start to realize like this whole mindset we've had. Of well, it's just part of the job. And like, well, you know what you signed up for is kind of bullshit that we've been sold to allow us to be treated kind of like garbage. Yes. And not just in like, you have a call, take it. This is, and it doesn't matter what the call is, but also in, in the assault form, right? Like assault and battery. Yeah. That it literally oh, is assaulted. just, it's part of the job. Do it. Suck it up. Yeah. I still have scars from, from getting assaulted by a patient. Jeez. What a, what did I that do, patient yeah. do to you, dude? Uh, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's just because I'm a delicate little flower, but like. I doubt it. Yeah. He, uh, he was fiddling with his, uh, with his seatbelt buckle. So I reached over to, to strap him back in. And I was like, Hey man, if you keep doing this, I'm going to restrain you. And, uh, he grabbed my forearms, um, and like dug his nails. In oh, my forearms. gross. That's so gross. And like, he was a homeless dude. His hands were super dirty. Like, oh. And like, he dug in and I was. I was at that weird thing where like if I pulled, they just went in a little bit deeper. And yeah. Finally, I had to just like kind of relax and let go of me. And we roll into the hospital and I got these like four fingernail marks on my forearms. And uh, like they only really show up if I get a tan. Sure. Um, <laughs> but like every time I see them, I'm like, oh yeah, like that happened. Yeah. And it's not like we just restrain people for fun. I mean, having the having the seatbelts on is not an option (laughs) come on keegan (laughs) uh having the seatbelts on in the back of an ambulance is a complete like it's a huge safety risk because oh yeah when the boxes roll you know if if something happens that is a a projectile in the back of the ambulance that you don't want to have to be dealing with on top of all of the other projectiles that you have floating around yeah uh what did you think about those i don't know if you saw them um one of the emts uh one of the paramedics at the ambulance service that we worked for made this little box that went over the seat belts so that people can push the buttons do you remember that 
Oh. Yeah, and it had a little like key that almost looked like a handcuff key where it was just thin. So there was a little hole and you push the key in the hole and it pushes the seatbelt button to release the seatbelt. That's brilliant. It's it's brilliant, but it's also a safety risk, right? Because what happens if you do get in an accident and now you're incapacitated and the patient can't get out of the restraints or out of the seatbelts? <laughs> that's Actually, a t- I mean, that's a tough one, huh? It is tough. Yeah, I think I think it is brilliant, and I do think that it has its place. Um, I don't know if they are still utilizing them. I want to say that I have seen them on the ambulances when I walk by, but I don't know if they're still utilizing them or not. Man, every once in a while when I'm back in Albuquerque picking up my kids, I uh, I'll drive by a unit and I'll like turn my head and see like, do I know who's in there? And I don't recognize a soul anymore dude no it's so few the turnover rate was so huge that you don't recognize anybody like i i still consistently walk into the hospitals here and i recognize more nurses than i recognize emts on the ambulance yeah it makes me feel so old i know i know right and so fast right like it just came on like so back fast. in my day we used to work with these other people like who are you young whippersnappers <laughs> i know <laughs> They're all new and bright-eyed, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm well I'm overseasoned and well cooked, man. I'll tell you. I feel you. I feel you. I'm uh, a little too cooked sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a little, little tough. Yeah. Uh, let's start talking about some of your calls. I know it's been a while since you've been in the nine one one system, but we could probably dredge up a couple good ones, huh? Oh, I'm I'm sure they're. Buried down deep. I'm sure we can dig them up. (laughs) Okay, good. What would you say has been probably your most memorable or favorite call? Um, so I don't necessarily know that I have a favorite call, um, so much as I have like favorite experiences of working with other people. Okay. Um, in fact, I was actually just thinking about this. I was hoping there would be a way to talk about this, but like, very soon after I started working for an ambulance service, I almost got myself uh, in serious trouble um, <laughs> because I axe murdered an ambulance. How did you do that, dude? So I was cleared off orientation and I was working my double medic stuff and I was working with a paramedic. He might still be working as a supervisor. I'm not going to name names. No. <laughs> but she and I were lamenting that. Um, EMS has gotten a little more serious and, and we appreciate it. We, we miss when the crews would do stuff like play pranks on each other and like uh-huh. keep, keep morale up. And so we decided one fateful evening that we were going to bring it back. And like, we decided to dive into it with both feet. So we went to, uh, a Walgreens and got Vaseline for door handles <laughs> And then, oh no, it gets better. Uh, you remember when Hastings was still around? Yeah. That's how, I mean, first off, that's how old I am, but. We are. We are, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, we walked into Hastings and we immediately started rooting around the dollar CD bin and just uh-huh. picking out the most obnoxious looking CDs we could. And when we would get to the hospital, and we'd unload our patient. We would then, there was a truck there, we'd mess with it. And we like looped up a door handle here and there. We put CDs in the thing and like turn the truck on and like crank the volume and like crank and turn the, the truck up. on. Yep. And uh, 
<laughs> they turn the truck on and would just blare this horrible like dollar store CD at them. <laughs> um, but one of the things we picked up at Walgreens was a can of Axe, the you know the body spray, <laughs> like the body spray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we hit one ambulance in particular with everything. Oh we my god! <laughs> lubed up the door handles, and I believe this person got in and strapped the door handles closed on the inside with a longboard strap. <laughs> so like you had to get through the, and he had to do it because like I don't. You don't know who I am. I got broad ass shoulders. I'm not fitting through any porthole. No. <laughs> and we put a CD in, and I think it was Los Pumas de Jalisco. So like just this, <laughs> like mariachi music that a that a Mexican restaurant would have a hard time playing. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, but the last thing we did, we took this can of Axe and we taped it open and running, and then put it in the back of their truck like a bug bomb. That's so messed up, dude. <laughs> and if you're listening to this, don't, it's a terrible idea. I was there. So like, <laughs> I, I learned this from experience. Don't, don't do this. But this, this paramedic and I, we're like, we have to see the results of our handiwork. So we, the crew comes down and the paramedic we did it to, he's a really great guy, but he's not real known for his sense of humor. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and he opens they open the passenger but first off i'm really lucky that they weren't bringing a passenger or a, a patient out of the hospital yeah this, this rig was not safe for human consumption oh my god but they open the back doors and they are physically knocked back by this cloud of ass <laughs> that shits them and they're like who did this? And uh, so they go around to the front and they try to open the doors and of course their hands are slipping off the thing and then they wipe down the door handle. Oh, man. And they can't open the doors because the doors are strapped in from the inside. So one of them has to go into this fucking frat boy smelling patient You're compartment. such a jerk, man. And uh, open the porthole and like unclip the thing so they open the door. They get it all loaded in, they turn their truck on, and the fucking music starts blaring. <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, oh, man. Apparently, this paramedic got on the radio and was like, We're 10 7, we're coming back to base. <laughs> and, uh, so they, they pull the truck in, and we get a call like 50 minutes later from the supervisor, and he's like, Hey, do you know what's going on? Do you know who did this? <laughs> and we're like planning done. And we're like, no, I have no idea. Like, and he's like, because we've looked at all of the ambulances because the other crews have complained. And you guys are the only common crew that have been there for every one of these. And he's uh, like, so they used their deduction skills. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, if you if you don't tell us if it was you or not, we're gonna start pulling camera footage. And if we have to start doing that, it gets way more serious. And I was, I was like, okay, yeah, it was us. And he was like, okay, you guys need to come back to base. So we go back to base. <laughs> they pulled you from the line. To... Yeah. Jeez, it was serious then. <laughs> we come back to base and we, we parked out in front because they were like, leave your truck running. Like you're in trouble. You're not in so much trouble that we're not going to still use you for the night. Yeah. <laughs> so we opened the main door and you can smell act in the building. Not a small building. <laughs> no. 
And no, the, that is a pretty large building. The smell gets stronger as we get closer and closer to the supervisor's office. And we're we're in there and it's a it's a FOSS who is uh a field soup who's uh acting as a zero one or as an op soup for the night. And then the op soup is there and the op soup has his back turned to us and like uh <laughs> big big southern gentleman and the field soup is like what the fuck happened? And we're trying to explain, like, we're just trying to like up bud and like do all this stuff. And, and it, I think we, it got way out of hand. Like we were just gonna, we went big on the last one <laughs> and he's like, okay, do you realize that they've been transporting a patient? Like that they couldn't have put a patient in the back of the ambulance. So we're like, we recognize that now, like, uh, all this other stuff. And they're like, okay, our punishment was to break down the unit for BioQuell. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and we, we go out to the garage, and all the doors are open, and you can smell above the diesel fumes and the car washing soap and everything else, <laughs> Axe body spray. They had to BioQuell the unit like three times, and the smell oh never... <laughs> the smell, if like if it was a hot day outside, you could still smell like the faintest bit of Axe in the seat fabric. <laughs> so funny dude but the uh when we're getting our asses chewed out the op soup saw his back turned to us and hasn't said a thing and like that to me is way more terrifying than being yelled at sure <laughs> and he turns around and he's got this he's like trying to not smile he's got like his his mouth in front of him like this and uh he's like you know i wanted to be mad it's only what happened and then this paramedic comes in and i hear a person and he opens the door and I could smell him down the hole before he got to the office. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, I didn't get fired. So I was like, I'm probably pretty sage. Oh, dude. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty I, good one. You, you got to learn, right? Yeah. They like the worst prank I think I had on me was we had, I don't know if you remember that like blow up gray alien that they were passing around for a while. So you'd randomly find it in the back of your truck while we were, parked at one of the hospitals and walked out and somebody had completely duct taped him to the back of the ambulance so you couldn't open the back doors at all you had to peel off like it had to have been like two or three rolls of duct tape oh, just holding this blow up alien to the doors it was nuts those were the good old days yeah i uh i think we probably would have gotten away with it if we hadn't i think the axe was the tipping point i think everything else would have been like <laughs> all right we're messing with people yeah. And we were like, yeah, 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 fine. But when you make a rig, like, unsafe for humans, <laughs> then, yeah, you probably you probably crossed the line somewhere. I mean, let's be honest. Axe body spray already is unsafe for humans. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it was Phoenix flavored. Oh, that's my favorite one. <laughs> well. At least it smelled good. And it's a, then it's a shame it wasn't yours. I know. <laughs> It was. I probably would have loved that. <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. That. Uh, do you think that yeah. the outcome would have been different if it had been a different medic? No, it's pretty bad. <laughs> and like, it took this medic a long time to uh, to forgive me. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, and like with with the the hindsight of maturity, I get it. Sure. Like, I I want to say like, oh, he was being just a humorless dick, but no, that's. That's a pretty good reason to, to be humorless about something. That is that's pretty funny. 
Uh, so I'm going to kind of throw a curveball at you. Do you have any calls where you like you actually saved a life and you're like super proud about it? Yeah. I was working in the hospital and oh, I'm getting like goose pimples thinking about it. Um, I was working in the hospital. I was doing dispatch that day and crew brought in uh, a pediatric code and this little girl was out at her grandparents' farm and she couldn't have been more than two or three years old when this happened and she was at her grandma's grandma and grandpa's farm and they had a, a koi pond with a bunch of fish in it and they went out there and they fed the fish and she thought it was the coolest thing ever and they all went back inside and she got outside and wanted to go back to the fish pond and it was a not a natural pond so it had that that slick lining in it mm -hmm. and she got too close slipped fell in and the pond was just deep enough that she couldn't stand up and uh you know they couldn't find her in the house they started looking for her outside they found her in the pond and it was it was pretty cold outside and i actually think that's what saved her life and uh they brought her into the hospital and i was supposed to be at the dispatch desk that day um and i think i just grabbed one of the other text or medics and i was like you need to sit here i need to go work this like i i can't i for wh whatever reason i couldn't not be in the room and uh they brought her in and she had a pulse and she kept going pulseless and we ended up stabilizing her and getting her to the picu and uh i remember i left the room and we were in there for about an hour and we left the room and I was just, I had tears streaming down my face and like trying to answer ambulance calls. And it was right near the end of our shift. And uh, they had done a CT on her. She had a lot of brain swelling. And one of the other techs I worked with, she was in the room with me. She went up that, that room every day uh, and ended up like getting banned from the you. Oh, goodness. And got really close with the mom and this little girl ended up making a full recovery. Wow. And uh, she would probably be about 11 or 12 now. And I remember four or five years ago, I reached out to the mom on Facebook and it was just like, hey, I was part of this effort at the hospital. And I know you're, I had asked this, this tech uh, that went up there was still friends with them and i asked this tech to like reach out to the family and i was like is it okay if i message them just for some closure and uh they're like that's totally fine and i messaged them and i got pictures back and she looks like a normal kid that's great and uh i i could do nothing else in my career and i feel like I, it's all been worth it like you accomplished what you were supposed to do because you had something calling yeah. you into that room that day yeah and uh i remember uh when that call happened i when she was brought in my daughter at the time was four or five months old and her mom and i had separated and uh i just called her in tears and uh went over there and i just held my daughter for like an hour and a half that was i was really rough yeah, it sounds like you can tell in your voice that that was pretty rough on you. Do you think that it was rougher because your child was that around that age at that time? Oh, yeah. 
I don't remember what this little girl looks like. I just keep imagining my daughter. Yeah. And like, I, I used to think like, I didn't get it when people would describe stuff like that until it happened to me. And now I a hundred percent understand. Yeah. Having, having children completely changed your, your outlook on it. Yeah. Yeah. That can be rough, man. I mean, I, I don't have kids, but the pediatric calls are the hardest. You know, yeah. It, I think we all have a soft spot for kids, and that makes it difficult when we do have the kid calls. You know. Yeah, and I'm I'm thankful that she's, you know, she seems to be doing okay. I haven't I haven't followed up since then. Well, it's good that you were able to also contact and get that closure, and that you yeah. feel good about it. Oh, that's really good. Um, we had a guy once, really, really, really far across town, who um, he called. He was young. He was a like in his early 40s very fit he was going through a divorce had just gotten seen you know for anxiety and had gotten medications for anxiety and he said he woke up and he felt anxious but something just didn't feel right and kind of a little bit of chest pain he just like it felt like anxiety to him but he just wanted to make sure because it was like you know 12 12 o'clock or two o'clock in the morning and he um, he just looked a little bit off, but the fire department was like, they did the vitals and they were like, everything looks good. And, you know, you can't really, and I don't know if it's like this for everywhere, but for here, it's whoever's first on scene kind of has control of that scene. Yeah. And so didn't want to step on toes. So I was kind of hanging out in the back, just taking notes um, just to see. And he was the, the captain asked him, like, do you want to go get evaluated? And he's like, well, no, not really. And thank goodness the fire guy actually respected, you know, the transport service because he turned around and he looked at me and he said, is there anything that you would do different? And I said, well, you know, I'd feel a little more comfortable before getting a refusal if we got a 12 lead. Like he had the refusal paperwork all drafted up and ready for this guy to sign. And we did a 12 lead and I don't remember what it was now, but it, he popped up just enough elevation to, to call it a, a myocardial infarction on the monitor. Like, just enough to call it. Like, like if you had printed it out and it didn't say it, you wouldn't even call it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was just barely there. But from, so I was like, well, now, really, I mean, you have the option, but you probably shouldn't refuse at this point because you you are having a heart attack. Like, let's take you to the hospital. We're going to take you lights and sirens. That was probably one of the only progressing STEMIs or progressing heart attacks I've ever seen. He went from a little bit of elevation to tombstone T-waves by the time we got to the downtown facility. And I just literally kept hitting print. And every time you hit print on the monitor, it was increasing and increasing and increasing. And I called the hospital. You know, when we were back, this was in, uh, just to give you kind of an idea, we were at like Tramway and Paseo. Oh, geez. <laughs> we were way out there. And... So I called them as soon as we left this guy's house, like, hey, we're coming in with a, a heart attack, you know, activate the people that you need to activate. And we showed up and they hadn't activated. They were like, well, we wanted to wait and see what you guys had. I'm like, bro, <laughs> I gave you every opportunity here. Like door to balloon time matters. You know what I mean? And um, oh, God. he ended up waiting. I... He got really lucky because I think he ended up waiting two hours for cath lab to get there after we showed Jesus. up. And I went and visit. I got the opportunity to go and visit him like a day after he had his cath. 
and he was he had 100% occlusion and that felt really good you know I I did everything that I could do and everything that I needed to do to facilitate getting him to the right place and he wasn't just another you know statistic which was nice mm-hmm. that one felt good um, you talked a little bit about how all you see or all you saw at the time you know was your daughter's face so would how do you feel about PTSD in the field Oh, I think it's a thing that we've done a really poor job of addressing. And it's it's something that I think after after a certain amount of time in the field, like we've all got it in, in some form or fashion. Um, you know, I've been seeing a therapist for a few years now. I have a formal diagnosis of it. Like one of the things my, my therapist and I talk about is it's not just the bad calls that result in this kind of stuff. You know, we spend an average shift is what twelve hours long. Ish, yeah. Work, work three to four days a week, so thirty-six to forty-eight hours of your life a week is spent as a coiled spring, ready to bounce out. And doing that fundamentally rewrites how your brain's neural pathways identifies a threat. Because when we respond to a call, it's an external stimulus that our brain doesn't know how to respond to. So it it sends us into a fight or flight, fight or flight response. You know, it messes with your amygdala, which is the thing that regulates how you emotionally respond to stuff. I've been out of the field now for six and a half years. And like, every time I start listening to an episode of 911 nonsense available, (laughs) podcasts are sold. Uh, Thanks bro. (laughs) Yeah, I got you. Uh, Anytime I start listening to an episode, the sound of the sirens and the radio chatter, like, I can feel myself tense up. Yeah. Um, you know, when I'm in my, my partner and I have talked about this and she said like, it's really interesting being in a public place with you because you will hear in a store five aisles over someone go, and she's like, you like, they're like a dog, like pointing right at it. Yeah. (laughs) Cause we, we, we hear these, these things that could be potential emergencies and, and our body, like it's not a conscious thing I'm doing. Yeah. And I don't think any of us do it consciously, um, but our body focuses on these these stimuli that we're trained, not necessarily through schooling, but through exposure and experience to respond to. And you know, we we talk about we've all had that that time when you've been at home, and like you hear the tones in your dreams, and you get up and you start like putting your pants on, and you're like, wait a second, <laughs> yeah, I'm not at work today. <laughs> yeah, this this isn't my station. Yeah. But like that's a mild form of that rewiring of neural pathways. Like you forget where you are. Like you're so in you're so ingrained to respond. So so like we both worked down south. Have you ever, when you're driving up the hill on I twenty five, been like five minutes out, you know, just out of habit? Oh, yeah. yeah. I've done that in the car and my wife's like <laughs> five minutes from what you know or 15 minutes or whatever like <laughs> i'm like oh that was habit i don't know why i said that out loud i'm sorry <laughs> i don't know and it it's so funny how like how this job um affects the way you think about things that you wouldn't even think are tied to it i remember once my uh so my 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 partner she is from colorado Springs. she has lived here most of her life so she's very familiar with the area i've only lived here for four and a half ish years so like i'm still learning stuff but i still think about 
how I'm going to get to a place based on egress and access. Like there's a, there's a Costco up here and like there's two exits you can get to, to get to it. And she always took one, like the most direct looking route, like oh, there's the exit before the Costco and you turn here and then you have to go through all these lights. I'm like, ah, but it cuts on your response time. If you go to the next exit, which curves around <laughs> and brings you around the backside, like there's less lights, there's less people to deal with. Yeah. And he's like, why do you think about it like that? And I'm like, I, <laughs> I can't not think about yeah, it. Yeah. Like you drove the ambulance forever and have to, you had to know the easiest access points. When I told her to like, when we go this way, it's all right hand turns and like, right-hand turns are quicker because you can take a right-hand turn without having to wait for the light yep in an ambulance that's the quickest way to go sometimes is the way that seems the most back around yeah like oh actually like i don't have to contend with traffic if i go this way yeah it took me a while to explain to her like it just makes sense i don't know how else to tell it to you like this is just how it is <laughs> just this is what i say just do it <laughs> yeah <laughs> so do you think that they're are a lot of people who in the medical field fake PTSD or lie about it, like use it as a crutch almost? I don't think so. And the reason is because we've gotten better, not just as an industry, but like as as a whole, recognizing and, and being sympathetic to people that have something like PTSD. But there's still there's still that stigma attached to it that I think if someone's faking it like there's got to be some some type of underlying reason. I don't necessarily think that anyone is uh, would fake PTSD just for sympathy points. I agree, and I just wanted I just wanted your opinion because I think people are afraid that I think people are afraid we're going to say it too much. And I don't know if that's somebody who suffers from PTSD and they feel like they've they they've earned that, you know, like almost like a badge of honor, and they don't want it to be overutilized. Sure. I mean, my my response to somebody like that is, A, you don't get to dictate what gives or doesn't give someone PTSD. Like, for the longest time, I think we in EMS were so hesitant to address PTSD because it felt like a thing that only soldiers had. And, like, if you didn't serve, like, you couldn't have PTSD. Like, what did you see? Yeah, it was almost like this, a badge this, of honor. Yeah, like this, like, downplaying of, of this serious thing and while i don't claim to know the experiences of someone who has served in the military um can tell you from from my service and seeing things that i would love to forget um you know those those images are indelible and when i'm having a really bad night they pop up in my dreams and i wouldn't wish them on my worst enemy sure and I, I don't for one second think that that is a unique take or applicable to only me. You know, I think with given an, enough time in this field, we all get there. I, I, and I will agree to a certain extent. This is such an unforgiving field. I think you can get there after one year, you know, and it only, it can only get worse after 10, but the stuff we're seeing these days. Not to say that it's any worse than before, but oh right. And so in that in my first year as a medic when I worked for the long since past ambulance service, I responded to rollover accidents. Uh I had a person was able to shoot themselves in the chest with a shotgun, suicides, traumatic injuries. Yeah. 
Like you have to, you have to want it at that point. Yeah. Just stuff like that. Like, and it made me, cause I didn't recognize what was going on, um, you know, at the time, but it made me short tempered and, and cynical. And I know that we wear it as a badge of honor that when people are having their worst days, like we are there for them. And that's a noble and admirable goal. But what it doesn't address is we're there for everybody's worst day. And uh, I'm I'm really glad to see that awareness has risen and, and there are more resources out there. And I, and I hope that that trend continues. I agree 100%. Do you feel comfortable talking about maybe one of your worst ones that has affected you personally? Uh, yeah. If you feel comfortable sharing it. No, that's, I do. So the worst, the worst thing that I remember isn't necessarily like the goriest call or, uh, the most graphic scene. I remember when I was working for an ambulance service, I, and my, my partner and I got dispatched to, uh, a nine echo, a cardiac arrest, and it was out in the war zone. And one of the kind of long term, like residency motels that are out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, we get out there, and fire's already on scene. They they've already started working it, and we get in, and it's this older gentleman, but he's not. I wouldn't call him elderly. Like I honestly don't remember this particular detail very clearly. I would say like mid fifties or something. Um, he okay. didn't look like some particularly good help. Um, but we we did all the stuff that we normally do, and uh, unfortunately, like most codes. Um, we never ended up getting Ross and I had been kind of talking with the family already. And so I told the fire guys like, Hey, I'll go let them know what's going on. And, uh, we, we go into there, they had two rooms and they were one of those rooms that was like joined with a door mm-hmm. uh, and like the second room had been converted into like, I had a kitchenette and another couple of beds and stuff. And it's interesting, like the things you don't notice when you're going onto a scene, like you kind of tunnel vision, like for a code, you're like, all right, where's my patient? Let's get going. And then as you start to like kind of widen your field of view, then you start to pick up on little details. I go and talk to his wife and it turns out his two children and his kids were, I think the oldest one looked like he was about six or seven years old. Right, just at that age where you're being taught in school, like if you have a problem, you call nine one one. These guys will show up and they will fix that problem. Yeah. And uh, the the wife is sitting there and she's holding the kids, and I uh, I remember crouching down next to her and I I said, you know, I'm I'm sorry. We've done everything we can, and at this point, like, um, there's nothing more we can do, and. You know, she starts crying and there was a little boy and then the second kid was a little girl. She was younger and that little girl kind of been older than three or four. Like she didn't really understand what was going on. Uh, she knew dad was sick and that a bunch of people came in and now mom's upset. And so she was upset. I get the feeling she was upset because mom was upset. Mm-hmm. Um, but I watched in that little boy's eyes his whole worldview break. Um, it's, you know, he was being told in school, hey, if there's a fire, you call the fire department. They come and they'll save everybody. 
there's a problem, you call the cops and they're there for you. If you get hurt, you call the ambulance and the ambulance shows up and they make everything better. And like at six or seven years old, like you're old enough to understand the concept of death and the permanency. And I will always remember until the day I die, uh, how she looked because he didn't cry. That kid had a thousand mile stare. Like he was, he was anywhere else, but there. And like that, that breaks my heart because like every person will realize at some point that the world can be a really shitty place. And that's, that's probably the hardest one because it's, it's not, it doesn't, it feels like a thing that you can't really, like we can all commiserate about the bloody graphic calls and, you know, there's that silver lining of getting to work trauma skills. Like maybe you can do something, but like, there's no training I have. There's no skill I possess like that kid on that day had to learn a really, really hard truth. Yeah. That one's rough. I yeah. often hear, you know, that the family, the family's response to these terrible calls is what's affecting people more than, than the actual call, you know? Yeah. And it's, it is true. And there's no way for us to like in the hospital, you can kind of quickly guide the family out and put them into a little room, you know? But when you're on, when you're in the field, it, you can't do that. Maybe you can move them to the living room or you can put them outside. But there's like so many codes that I worked where you, it's kind of a hard line whether or not you let the family member stay in the room. Yeah. You know, and it, it's hard because if they don't see what you're doing, they're probably not going to believe that you tried to do everything that you could. Yeah. But it's, it's also, it's such a violent process. Like it is a violent, violent process. CPR is not an easy thing to do, you no. know? Uh, and we don't crack ribs on everybody, but when you do crack ribs that like, I remember the first time I cracked ribs and that was a terrible feeling. Yeah. Terrible feeling. Because then you think, well, if they do survive this, now they've got this, that they have to get through, you know, and that's not going to feel very good. Right. That one was rough, dude. Yeah. And sometimes I wish, you know, the hard thing was like this really graphic call, you know, and saw this and that, but it's so much harder to contextualize like watching a child's heartbreak. Yeah. I think Hallmark has it down pretty good, you know, with their Christmas movies. <laughs> but, uh, it's a completely different story when it's real life. Did I just need to download that shit to my iPhone and be like, here, I need you to watch this on scene. Like, I know. While I, like... do, while I go do this, <laughs> you watch this heartwarming movie. Yeah. You're, you're screaming at me right now because I'm putting you in triage after you called me for something like toe pain. Would you like to see what I just dealt with? You know, let right. me let me play this in reverse for you. Well, that was I remember that time I was working, uh, I was working nights, and that was at like ten or eleven at night. And so, you know, I remember that shift and subsequent shifts after just feeling off, and I don't never really dealt with it. I just put it in a box and put it, you know, in my mental closet, and was like, I'll deal with this at some point. I'm sure. Sure. And I feel like that makes you kind of question what you're doing, right? Like, not you specifically, but EMTs. I mean, there's been a few times where you're just walking out like, why am I doing this? Oh, yeah. Why am I doing this to myself? uh, So I I never wanted to be a paramedic. 
That was never my goal. Um, I got my EMT license because I wanted a weird, or not a weird job. I needed a job that worked weird hours so I could go to culinary school. Oh, you wanted to be a chef. That was the plan. Interesting. And um, <laughs> I took my EMT basic class fall of 2006. And uh, I, you know, I was one of those kids in high school that like, I didn't have to try really hard. I had to get B's and like, I just kind of slacked off. And, you know, like every, every gifted kid out there has stories about how like, they were told they had nothing but potential and then none of us ever looked up to it <laughs> and uh that was back at the time the college i went to required you to get an 80 percent on everything like not just class average but like every test required an 80 percent and i took my first test and i got a 79 and the teacher pulled me aside and she was like what the fuck are you doing and i was like what do you mean she's like you're way smarter than this like if you want to take this seriously like i can she's like i have the ability to uh like with my discretion keep you going and like then you gotta you gotta knock everything else out of the park which is like if you like if you want to fuck around like i'll kick you out of the class right now but if you like want to take this seriously and learn what you're doing like i'll keep you around and uh it was the kick in the ass that i needed and like yeah. i applied myself and i i graduated or i finished the class and got my license when i had it in hand i was like i really like this and i don't like I can cook at home. I can't really do EMS at home. Yeah. And uh and I kept with it and here I am like so many years later and there were days when I was like I would rather go peel potatoes and yell yes chef than like deal with some of the shit we have to see. Right. Sometimes those potatoes are a lot lighter than than the mental weight you're carrying, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's a true story. This job can be really tough, but it can be really rewarding too, you know? I think ultimately, I think ultimately it's been more good than bad, but man, that bad, it's not a, it's not as lopsided the scale as I would hope. Yeah, I agree. You know, and, and like having to explain to my kids, like what PTSD is and like how mine manifests and how like, you know, the other day my, I was with my daughter in the grocery store and I hate grocery stores it is an environment that i cannot control and so i just want to get in and get out and like she's an eight-year-old little girl that just like skipping around and like dancing having a and good time all. yeah yeah <laughs> and finally i had to tell her like i need you to stop and she was you know because i went from like zero to, to like knocking off yeah and i had to explain to her like once you got out of the store i had to be like okay kiddo like let me tell you how dad's brain works I said, like, you know, one of the things that, that stresses me out is, is grocery stores. And they stress me out because of, of some of the things I've dealt with on the job. And I don't like being around this many people at a given time. And so, like, when I'm in the grocery store, like, my goal is to get in, get what I need, and get out. Sure. I said, like, and every time, like, you're dancing around and stuff, and I see movement out of the corner of my eye, like, I keep turning towards it. And, like, all that's doing is raising my stress because there's all this stuff coming at me. And, like, logically... I know that it's just you, but like, there's a part of my brain that doesn't respond logically. It's there to protect me. And right now it's doing its damnedest to like, get me ready to protect myself. And like, I don't think it's necessarily super common to have to explain hypervigilance to a second grader. No, <laughs> I don't think it's very common to explain hypervigilance to anybody. Like yeah, when any time that my wife and I go out, she's constantly telling me, stop staring, stop staring stop staring you know and i'm like 
not necessarily staring at one person, but I'm constantly checking to make sure nobody's pulling weapons or that oh, nobody's yeah. fighting. And like, cause th- th- the other day there was a shooting at a movie theater and like just the day before we had gone to watch a movie, you know, and it wasn't like it was literally over seats. Oh yeah. They the, fought over seats. The, the club Q shooting that happened here last year. Um, yeah. Right next to it is a mini golf place that we love going to because it's like $4 around and they sell pretty cheap beer. But like we, especially as the weather gets warmer, like we go mini golfing because it's a cheap thing to do and we have a drink and like we all have a good time. And then right across the parking lot is Club Q. And at that point, my partner and I were living half a mile from it. Like we've heard the sirens going by and you know, I'm in my mind, I'm like, oh, like something's going on. Yeah. And I just put it to rest and you find out the next day, like, oh God, like there was a huge MCI and it was right there. And like, we go to that place that's next door to this place. And it just, it's like you, that happens and you can feel your brain being like, see, I told you so, man, like head on the swivel all the time. Yeah. So if you could go back and give yourself advice when you're coming into the field, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to find a therapist right away and to not let yourself be afraid to process what you see and that this job will give you a lot but it will take so much more from you if you let it and for the longest time I let it and uh, it's only after leaving EMS in the field that I've been able to reclaw some of that back good advice dude strong strong sound advice ultimately i think i would probably tell myself like really think about it because i you know i i wanted to get into the fire department and do all that stuff and not everyone's cut out for the fire service i'm not and like know what you want to do because you know working ems for 30 years is not it's not a viable career path for a lot of people anymore no it's hard it's a hard it's a hard job it's a hard career and I don't think there's enough protections set up for for the people that are wanting, you know, to be in it for the longevity. Yeah. Was the average lifespan of a paramedic now is like two and a half years? You know, I keep hearing I keep hearing that, and it's yeah, everybody has said about two to three years. And like the things that you know, that makes me wonder is not. So I'm having to retake statistics because I'm trying to get in nurse practitioner school. If a C isn't good enough. C's get degrees. They do not get you admission. I love statistics. <laughs> well, you need to take this fucking classroom either. Um, but you and I are statistical outliers. Like we we throw off this average. And it, it doesn't make me wonder how we got here. Like we, you and I, and those of us that have been around for a long time, have found that satisfaction and that ability to continue on with our jobs. It makes me wonder about all the people that skew that average below that mm-hmm. and if they had had enough support, if they could have made it, you know, for every, for every paramedic that does it for 15 or 20 years, there's gotta be uncounted masses of those that couldn't get through a licensure research cycle. And like, is that because that it wasn't for them? Cause if that's the case, like I get it, square pegs, round poles, sometimes it doesn't work. 
But I have to imagine that some of those kids, if they had gotten the support that they needed when they had that first real hard call, if they could have continued on. Sure. They could have gone on to be good providers, you know? Because I think ultimately it does a disservice to our field. Like we, we shouldn't hear like, oh, the average lifespan of a paramedic is two to three years. I'm like, look, we're still here. We're super tough. It's, how is it so short? And what can we do to support each other to bring that average up? Yeah. And would you say that that's comparable to like an ER nurse? I don't know about ER nursing specifically, um, but I know nurses have a lot of opportunities that paramedics don't have. Like I have my BSN. I could take that anywhere. You know, I've, I've worked in the, the correction system for a time, like just popping out meds and handing them out like candy. And like, I, it's something you could do if you can recognize colors and shapes and you can read, like you don't need a nursing degree for it. <laughs> yeah. You need like sixth grade reading literacy and to not be colorblind. Yeah. But like they want nurses there and they pay for it. And, uh, you know, if, if one day I'm like, I'm sick of the floor, I'm going to go work somewhere else. I can go work somewhere else. Yeah, you literally could go anywhere. Yeah, but as a paramedic, you know, it's do you want to be in management slash will they hire you for management? You know, or do you want to go teach or do you want to go fly? And if you don't want to do those three things, like, well, then I don't know what to tell you, man. Like rig life or rig life or bus, baby. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so if you could do it all over, would you become a paramedic again? If I had like this, if I had my memories and experiences and whatnot going back, mm-hmm. no, no. Would you go straight into nursing? But not as a negative. Like if I'm going back and I have all my memories and my experiences and stuff, like I don't need to relive that stuff. I I still have it. I'll go do something else. If I had the rare opportunity and the gift to go back and and retain the person I am now with the experiences and things that molded me. But like my indestructible 21 year old self, fuck no. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'll go cook. Yeah. You'd go and cook. At, I mean, at that point, like, yeah, I've spent my time as a medic. Let's go do something else. Awesome. All right, bud. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The conversation was great. Um, I kind of want to give you the opportunity if you have like a charity or, you know, like Rob has Skulls for Hope or there's Hero to Hero. Do you have any programs that you would suggest? Skulls for Hope is a fantastic, fantastic foundation. I think Rob's doing some of the best work out there. Um, I know in Albuquerque, he really raised awareness and the ability to talk about it and like, I love Rob. I think Rob's one of the best. Dude. I think Rob's one of the best people out there, and like him doing that was huge. So I'll shout out Skulls for Hope, and then I'll shout out the Code Green campaign. Code Green, okay. Yeah, and then let's say like if you're working in the medical field and you're not already seeing a therapist or talking to somebody, it's it's the best thing you can do for yourself. It's the soundest investment you can make is to go talk with someone even if it's just once a month and you're just getting stuff off your chest awesome well thank you so much keegan i appreciate you coming out and spending the time with us today it's uh again great conversation man the great stories i hope that you're walking away feeling good about it absolutely thank you so much for having me i I had a blast yeah no man it was a lot of fun i appreciate it well we'll talk soon okay sounds good 
Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 Nonsense. If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 Nonsense merch page and our recently released Noon Gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week.